It is becoming increasingly more difficult to get out of the first verse of Romans 1. As a matter of fact, next week we're going to learn, discover what the gospel that Paul is preaching is all about. Because he calls it the gospel of God. He says in Romans 1, 1, he introduces himself as a bondservant. Paul, a doulos, a slave, a bondservant. He says that he's a, a bondservant called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Prepositions used by the apostle Paul mean everything. Always pay attention to those prepositional phrases. Because he says, I'm not just called, I'm called as an apostle. I'm not just set apart, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. It makes all the difference. We're going to look at what that looks like next week. Being called or being set apart for the gospel as he explains the gospel. Today we're simply looking at, we're simply going to examine this phrase that Paul uses to talk about himself as one who is set apart. He introduces himself as someone unique. He's a bondservant, served or called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's a new person. But he's not only a new person, he's a new person with a new position, a new passion, and a new purpose. His new position is a bond slave. This is a positional statement. He's in essence saying, I am no longer the one who walks around on the face of the earth with his chest stuck out and trying to rule the world and trying to make a difference. He said, who I am is now I'm one who comes, I report for duty daily to the feet of my Lord Jesus and I bow low to him. And I ask him as a bondservant what he would have me do. Formerly he was rising up in the ranks of Judaism as a Pharisee. And now he considers himself the chief of sinners who bows his knee to the Lord. So we see a change in position. We see a, a change in passion. Apostleship is his new passion. His new passion is to go where God sends him. That's what apostleship means or an apostle means. It means one who is sent. Someone who is sent on assignment. So he has a new position as a humble servant of Jesus Christ, the chief of sinners, rather than a Pharisee of Pharisees. He has a new passion. Formerly he was advancing beyond his contemporaries. He was zealous for persecuting the church. Now he's committed the, to the call to plant local churches. Isn't that ironic? Oh, the people that God uses and the way that he uses us. He has a new purpose. His new purpose is the gospel. All of his life is about the gospel. Formerly, he referred to himself as an expert in the law. Now, he says, I, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now, he says, I'm a fool for Jesus. So, things have changed in Paul's life. He's a new person. 
The unique message of the gospel does unique things. Paul presents himself as exhibit A. He provides personal testimony of the work of the gospel upon his own life. It's not just a verbal message that he's sharing. He's not just imparting a, a written message. He's imparting himself. He even says this many times to his audiences and the epistles that he writes. He says, I, I didn't just come to you in word only. I came to you in the power of the Spirit. I imparted my entire life to you. Nothing proves the work of grace in the human heart like lips and hands and feet and intellect that unceasingly testify. One anonymous author said that every Christian occupies some kind of pulpit and preaches some kind of gospel. Richard Halverson said, witnessing is not just something a Christian says, but what a Christian is. Paul was imparting himself and his new identity. He's a bond slave of Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I like spy movies. Some people say, I like spy novels. I don't read spy novels. I don't read books, all right? Unless they have something to do with theology, church history, or the Bible. Okay, I just, when I go into a library and I see all of these fiction books, I just look at it like it's a complete waste of my time. I love you if you, if you, that's your thing, I love you. It's just one of those things. So I watch movies. I watch spy movies. And, and I don't know who, you might have a favorite spy, you know, lead character out there, whether you're a James Bond, a Jason Bourne, an Ethan Hunt, or a Jack Ryan fan. Some of you may not know any of those names. Many times you will notice that these spies will always have some type of alternate identity. And they will have the proper paperwork. They'll have, you know, several different uh, passports that they keep in a, in a lockbox somewhere. And at the end of the movie where they have to burn their identity, they'll go and they'll get those, those passports. And they shuffle through the identities and you see the different names and nationalities they pretend they are. It sometimes leaves us wondering what their real identity is. Ever wonder that? Who, who, who is this person like for real? Like what's their real name? Where were they born? We wonder what they used to be before the transformation. How does their birth certificate differ from their most recent passport? And though the Apostle Paul was not involved in high stakes espionage <laughs> like these other men, his former identity is also just as intriguing, I think more intriguing, and surprising. Where did he come from? Who was he before this transformation, before he became a doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ? Before Paul was set apart for the gospel, he was a Pharisee. You may have heard that word before. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, really that whole chapter, we get a little snapshot of who Paul is according to his own word. So it's not as if somebody was saying, hey, you should know about Paul. We actually have a letter written by Paul to a church in Philippi 
where he includes in that letter a little information about himself that gives us an idea of who he was. Now, he doesn't do this for no reason. He has a point. But I want you to listen to what he says. This is in Philippians 3, second half of verse 4 all the way through 6. He says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So he, he calls himself a Pharisee, but he identifies himself as a Pharisee in a specific way. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was a zealous Pharisee. Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I wasn't just the cream of the crop. I was the creme de la creme. I was the top of the cream of the crop. I was at the head of the class. I was the best of the best. Pharisees were uh, a group of people. During Jesus' time, the historian Josephus tells us that there were about 6,000 I know sometimes whenever we read the New Testament, Jesus deals with the Pharisees a lot and we're tempted to think that every Jewish male during that time was a Pharisee. But actually, this was just a small group. It wasn't too small, but it was 6,000 people. But the Pharisees were a distinct group of people. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were uh, more political. They were also uh, more wealthy. You had the Zealots, you had the Essenes. Uh, you had the Sicarii, who were actually um, assassins. But the Pharisees were different from these other groups. The word aphorizo, which is used here in Romans 1, that Paul says, I've been set apart. The Greek word aphorizo is very similar to the Aramaic Pharisee. The word Pharisee that's used in New Testament times in Judea was an Aramaic term to refer to a group of people who were literally called the set-apart ones. The cream of the crop. The distinct. The Pharisees separated themselves from society for the study and interpretation of the law. This was their primary passion. They were responsible also for creating the, what's called the oral tradition of the law. Through the Pharisees, the law of God, that is God's word, took on a twofold interpretive nature, written and oral. Because they added oral authority to the written law, and because they controlled the government of the synagogues during Christ's ministry, they had many, many confrontations with Jesus. Most of the time when Jesus is saying things to groups of people and he says, you've heard it said. Yada, yada, yada. But I say to you, when Jesus is doing that, he's addressing the Pharisees that are in the crowd. Why? Because they've added this oral tradition to the written law. And so people who would go into the synagogues to worship, people who were trying to follow God, they were being told by the Pharisees, that the Bible, that the law was not enough. 
They had to have this special oral tradition, this special or, uh, way to um, interpret God's word. And they prided themselves in paying attention to every detail of the law and trying to figure out ways to get around it and ways to, to legalize certain things, certain behaviors, so that it is in line with the, wall, with the law. And so they would look at you, they would go through your life with a fine-tooth comb. They were meticulous. One author describes them as the progressives of their time, making cultural and social adaptations to God's written word in order to fit their own personal motives. They sought to add oral traditions to the law in order to purify their people. So their, their intentions were good. They wanted their nation to be more set apart. They wanted them to be holier. They just went about it the wrong way. But they had pure motives. Um, their motives may have been good at the time. But anytime you adulterate the truth of God's word in order to bring about reform in a society, the results will always be disastrous. Always. Jesus, therefore, challenged their authority to handle God's word the way that they did. Again, he would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he wasn't reinterpreting the law. What he was doing is he was pointing out their reinterpretation of the law and he was going back to the word as it is actually written. And they would question him and they would say, wait a minute, who is this guy? Who are you to tell us how to interpret the law? We are the set-apart ones. We're the cream of the crop. We've dedicated our lives to this. In other words, they were essentially saying to Jesus, the Son of God, the Word in the flesh, who are you to tell us how to interpret yourself? The Word. Oh, I don't know. I'm just the word in the flesh. So this is who the Pharisees were. This is Paul's background. This is where he's coming from. He's coming from this place of zealous faith. He's coming from this place of pure motives. He, he really wants reform in his society. And he thinks that he's doing all this for God. He's passionate about it. But everything in Paul's life has changed. And so this apostle, this man of God who's sharing the gospel in Romans, the, the letter that has changed, the Christian epistle that has changed so many lives over the centuries, is written by a man whose life was completely turned upside down from being a set-apart one, legalistically speaking, to a set-apart one for the gospel of God. The good news. The grace of God. He was forever changed. We learn several things about Paul's life in the New Testament. Of what does it mean, what does it look like to be set apart? And I want to share these three things with you this morning. Being set apart is more about attitude than aptitude. Being set apart is more about attitude than aptitude. Do you know 
If you're listening to this and you're a Christian, God's desire for you is just like his desire for Paul, that you would be set apart. He's designed you for that, that you be set apart. But sometimes, in our flesh, we misunderstand what it means to be set apart. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we misunderstand what it means to be set apart. And I want to encourage you with God's word today so that we have a clear picture of what God's desire is for us as he sets us apart. Being set apart as a Christian is more about attitude than aptitude. Aptitude simply meaning your power according to your own strength, your ability, your potential. I wonder what our potential is. How can God use me? What can I do for him in his kingdom? God sets us apart not to stick our chests out, but to bow our knees before him. It's more about our attitude, our, our posture before him. He grows us down so that he can grow us up. But growing us down must come first. Look at Paul's attitude. His attitude, we see mo uh, time after time in the New Testament, is one of weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He says, talking about Jesus, he says, And Jesus has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I am well content with weakness, with insults and distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. An attitude of weakness, humility. We see that weakness is, is not just something that Paul pulled out of thin air and said, here's a philosophy I want to share with you, brothers and sisters. It's worked well for me. But he says, no, this is actually the way of God. This is God's design. He, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27, he said, this is actually the way God works. This is the gospel. This is why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is why it's a stumbling block to the Jews. This is why it's foolishness to the Gentiles, he says. Because it's silly. It's weak. But he says... God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He says, also in 1 Corinthians 1, he's chosen this, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's the way God works. So Paul wasn't saying, this is my philosophy. He's saying, this is the gospel. This is the way God works. And it's nothing new because God is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. He's been operating this way since the time of Genesis. When we go back in the Old Testament, when we look at the stories of the way that God delivered his people, this is what he was saying. He's saying, you don't, you don't need the power of man for deliverance. You need me. You need me. And so God would call his people to do some really foolish things. He would call them to become weak so that he could make them strong. If you'll remember 
Maybe you've heard the story of Gideon's army. When God takes this great army that, of Gideon, he takes them, he sends them down to these streams, this, this river, and he says, okay, some people are going to drink the water this way and other people are going to drink the water this way. The ones that drink the water this way, uh, you're telling them to go home. Don't need them. The ones that drink the water this way, those are the ones you keep. It's like, oh, hold on, God. Don't, don't we need every person, every sword, every shield, every bow, every horse, every rider that we can get? God says, nope, you don't. You need me. You'll remember the story of a young shepherd boy named David who was small, young, who ran out past the mighty front line of Israel's greatest warriors, past them to meet a nine foot nine giant named Goliath with just a sling and some stones that he got off the ground. Why? Because it's God's way. How is he going to be glorified in our hearts and minds unless we see him do the impossible? So therefore Paul says, I'm okay being weak. Because it's in my weakness that God the Father is glorified. God doesn't need you or want you to be big. He wants you to be small. When God in intends to fill a soul, one writer wrote, he first makes it empty. When he intends to enrich a soul, he first makes it poor. When he intends to exalt a soul, he first makes it sensible to its own miseries, wants, and nothingness. The Christian life set apart for the Lord is humble, weak, and empty. Only then will you be used by God to do great things for his glory. Secondly, being set apart by God is more about availability than utility. More about availability than utility. We all want to be useful, don't we? I was one of four boys and one girl growing up. I was the middle child in the family. And um, so most of my life, we were all together, you know? And when dad would have us do something, he would ask us to go out in the yard and work around the yard or do something in the house. You better look busy, right? And uh, if, if dad didn't see you busy... He would give you something to do. And, and maybe you've heard of the five love languages. Gary Chapman wrote a book years ago called The Five Love Languages. He said people basically have five love languages. That is the things that, that communicate love to them. And those same things are probably the things that they do for other people. Right? So if you have someone who in your family who loves to receive gifts, they probably love to give gifts as well. That's their love language. Gifts. So if you want to communicate love to them, Give them things. It's just the way that they understand love. Mine is acts of service. Mine is, if you want to communicate love clearly, do things. Okay? I think my, my dad might have been that way too. But I, I grew up with this mentality of, if we're out doing something, we need to all pitch in. Right? We need to all pitch in, do something. And we say things like, hey... Make yourself useful, right? Pick up a tool, do something, yeah? 
My kids would testify to that. Of course, I don't have to do that anymore because they know it's my love language. They're like, well, I've got to do something for dad, you know. You guys see them set up and tear down every week. They're amazing. Paul's heart was in his work. And he worked. And by nature, we want to be useful. One could imagine that Paul's background as a Pharisee, as one set apart, would be helpful in God's kingdom work. He, he might be tempted to look back at, his, at his, all of his skills and his background and his desires and say, you know what, I can leverage this. We hear that term used a lot today in Christianity. I can leverage this for the Lord. I can be useful. And maybe as a Christian, you wonder oftentimes, how am I being useful? I've got to discover abilities to do something in God's kingdom. Is that the expectation that God has? Does he just want us to be useful? Is it about utility? Or is it about availability? Paul shows us that it's about availability. What we discover is that all the things Paul may have been tempted to find as useful in the Lord's work, he actually considers this, if we went back to Philippians 3 and read a little further down, we would see that all those things, he says that if anybody has a mind to put their faith, with their trust in these things, I all the more. He's saying, I, I have more tools in my toolbox as a Pharisee, humanly speaking, to help the kingdom along than anyone else. But you know what he says? He says, I consider everything in my toolbox rubbish. Why? He says that I may be found in Christ, that I may know him. And be found in him, not with a righteousness of my own, not with all my, not with my, you know, my utility belt, with all my stuff, but that I could be emptied of everything and come to him empty and say, Lord, fill me. Use me. I'm available. Use me as you see fit. He says, I've considered. All those things that were gained to me as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul was indeed saying that he was reporting for duty empty-handed. The same sentiment of abandoned availability is echoed in the, old, in the old hymn. Maybe you know this line. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That was Paul's attitude. So God doesn't need us to come to him with all of our usefulness. He's designed us for a specific purpose in his work. He's chosen us not because of all the worldly things we have in our tool belt. He's chosen you because you are the tool for his glory and his kingdom. And he knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing when he chose you. We were designed perfectly through Christ to accomplish God's work. The Christian life set apart for the Lord presents itself as an empty vessel to be filled with whatever God chooses to fill it with. It is more about being available than being useful.
if you're available, he will empower you for kingdom works that you could have never done in your own strength, with your own tools and abilities, or with your own knowledge. So being set apart by God is more about availability than utility. And finally, being set apart is more about the passion of your heart than the power in your hands. It's more about the passion of your heart than the power in your hands. As we said earlier, Paul's heart was in God's work. In Romans 1, as we read further along, we see in verses 9, 10, and 11, he expresses his heart a little bit. He says how he is unceasingly making mention of the believers in Rome in prayer. That's heart. Unceasingly praying. Praying without ceasing for them. Longing to see them in verse 11. Longing to see them. He, he says it's not just in his letter to Romans, but in many of the other letters he writes, you see Paul's heart for God's people and for God's mission. His heart for Christ the Lord. There's a story of a king I, I, I share often in the Old Testament. It's, it's really indicative of what God desires to see in his people. It's a story of a king named Asa. Now early on in Asa's reign, right after he becomes king, the Ethiopians come against God's people Israel. And they vastly outnumber Israel at this time. And it looks bleak. And Asa goes and he prays to God. And he says, we cannot do this on our own. Lord, we need your help. And he prays and he prays. And the Lord says to him, I will help you. If you seek me with your face. If you seek me with all your might. If you're faithful to tear down the idols in your land. If you're faithful to my word, if you love my people, I will deliver you from the hands of this massive army. And the Bible says that Asa believed God. He had faith in God. And he prayed and God delivered. And God routed the armies of the enemy. 35 years some odd later, Asa has enjoyed several decades of peace, prosperity. Another foreign enemy comes against Asa. Formidable force. He thinks, what are we to do? But at this point in his life, he's forgotten God. His heart is far away from God. And so he makes a deal with a foreign nation. And he says to the foreign nation, I need your help. Will you help us? And they say, yes, but it's going to cost you. And Asa says, how much? And they tell him how much. And he goes and he looks to where he would get this money. And you know where he goes to get the money to pay off the foreign ally to help him against his enemy? He goes into, the Bible says, the house of the Lord. Temple. Temple. 
And he takes the gold and the silver and the things that belong to the Lord that are holy, that are set apart for God, and he pays this foreign ally to help him. Well, God sends a prophet named Hanani to come and to confront King Asa. And the prophet says, you've been foolish. Has not God upheld you? Did he not deliver you years ago from the hands of your enemies? Why have you done this thing? This is a foolish thing. Asa got angry instead of repentant. He got angry. And then he died. But there's a statement in 2 Chronicles 16, 9 that the prophet makes to Asa. And he says this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. God doesn't need your resources. God doesn't need your power. What he wants and what he must have if we're going to be set apart for God, he must have our heart. He must have your heart. So being set apart is more about the passion of your heart than the power of your hands. Phillips Brooks once said, It does not take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men. It only takes people who've given their hearts to God. Another author wrote, The capital of heaven is the heart in which Jesus Christ is enthroned as king. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that's where, that, that's where the kingdom of God resides. In our hearts. What does it mean to be set apart for God? To God? More about attitude than aptitude. More about availability than utility. And more about the passion of your heart than the power in your hands. I pray that today, as you consider God's word, and as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, that you would think about what it means to be set apart for God, and that you put your faith, your hope, and your trust in him. Let's pray together before we dismiss. Father, we thank you, God, for your word today. That once again does not disappoint but it hits us. Father, it confronts us. It encourages us. It gives us power. Lord, it leads us in the right direction. Father, for each person that's here this morning, whether they're here in person or they're viewing at home, God, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts today. God, that we would Embrace what it means to be set apart for you, for your gospel. And God, we are confident that you will finish and complete the work that you've begun in us. God, if there are people here or people listening to this message who do not have eternal life, I pray that today you would do a work in their hearts as they encounter your word, encounter your truth. 
And God, that you would set them apart. That they would surrender themselves to you this morning. That they would bow to the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Confess their sin. And accept the free gift of eternal salvation through him. Let it all be so today in the name of Jesus.